Hello, and welcome to episode four of The Jared White Show. I am, of course, your host, Jared White, and I invite you to join me in a curated celebration of the art form that is the web. You can visit my website at jaredwhite.com, where you can sign up for my weekly newsletter with the latest links and blog posts from the site, as well as news about this podcast. You can also subscribe there to the show in your podcast player of choice, whether that's Apple's podcast app, Overcast, Castro, and others. Got a great show for you here today. I'm going to be talking to you about rituals, about the ethics of persuasion online, about the United Methodist Church and the statement it issued regarding Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm going to talk to you about essentials, non-essentials, and junk as defined by the minimalists, and more. So let's get started, folks. On our MetaTag segment today, which is where I talk about pretty much anything I want to, like a monologue, I want to talk to you about something I've discovered about myself, which is that I am a man of rituals. Yes, that's right. Rituals. Rituals make me happy. Now, what am I talking about? Am I talking about putting on a funny hat and a robe and starting to chant? Is it that kind of ritual? No, of course not. What I'm talking about is my daily rituals, rituals that uh, I do every day that are just the little things that make up the schedule, the ebb and flow of life on a daily basis. Um, So for example, the other day I was walking to a nearby coffee shop and I went to the coffee shop and I stood in line and I ordered a cup of coffee and I waited for the barista to make it. And then I got my cup, and I sat down in a chair, and it occurred to me that I had been pretty grumpy that morning. I woke up in a bad mood. I had a lot of things on my mind. I was upset about some things. But simply the act of going outside, taking a walk, going to a coffee shop, ordering a cup of coffee, getting my cup of coffee, sitting down in a nice comfy chair, and then thinking about what I just did, it occurred to me that uh, the the ritual was making me happy. And as I thought more about this, I started to think about other sorts of things I like to do on a regular basis. And, you know, the, the sort of uh, order of events that occur and where I'm doing these things. And I started to develop this sort of framework in my mind about rituals and, and how they work. So I've come up with this, the three laws of rituals. And I'll just spell these out for you because I think that this is pretty important for anybody that uh, has a job where they need to stay creative and focused and and on top of their game. And, you know, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to to sort of get uh, bogged down by all the deadlines and demands and things that, that vie for our attention. And so I think more than ever these days, it's important for us to really uh, come up with a good way to think about how we spend our time, how we manage our time. And so these three laws of rituals, uh, I believe, can really make a difference. So here's the first one. Rituals must not be interrupted. I think it's super important for you not to be interrupted when you are in the middle of a ritual. 
Uh, so, you know, what, whatever that might be, if it's, you know, if you have a sequence of events where you're going to do A and then B and then C, and you're going to do that in a certain place at a certain time, I think you really need to be careful to make sure that not only do you have that scheduled out and planned in your overall daily schedule, but that other people know that too. So, you know, if you need to, and I know lots of people that do this, you know, block out a time on your calendar that's just for you to to do this ritual. And, you know, it's basically like an appointment, just as you would schedule and prioritize an appointment with somebody else, you know, a, a meeting or something like that. Uh, schedule an appointment with yourself and make sure that you have that time blocked out and then everyone is aware of that. The second law is that rituals must unfold precisely and with little alteration. So going back to my original example, uh, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, I can make a cup of coffee for myself at home. And sometimes I do. I did that today, for example. So what's the difference between me making a cup of coffee and going somewhere else to, you know, get a cup of coffee there? As I thought about that, I realized that, you know, one the focus on is just on the the end result, getting a cup of coffee. And the other is about the ritual. So when I take a walk, when I arrive at a coffee shop, when I order coffee in, in line, when I get my cup of coffee, when I find a place to sit, when I sit down there, when I, you know, sort of observe the hustle and bustle of life around me, people meeting other people, people working on things and doing things, all of those little bits along the way make up this ritual. And so if you take any of those things out, if you sort of, you know, pluck out any of those little pieces and sort of, you know, rearrange that order or get rid of the other pieces or do something to, to interrupt the unfolding of that ritual, then it ceases to be a ritual. So a ritual has to be integral to itself. You know, it has to basically be the same sequence of events without much change every time. And so that, you know, it, it's it's a way of training your brain and, and telling your brain, like, this is what's happening. This is what is expected to happen. Uh, and, you know, if, if you do something like that in order to get creative, in order to, to stimulate, you know, new ideas and fresh inspiration, um, your, your brain is just going to get into that mode. You're going to do that ritual and your brain will just get into that mode. One thing I've found that I really like to do when I want to write and write a lot is I'll go to my local library. And just the act of going to a library and finding a place to sit down and being surrounded by books and being surrounded by people reading books and, and doing homework and just this sort of vibe around books, it just automatically puts my brain into writing mode. It's, it's really interesting. And, you know, I think... Part of uh, part of rituals is not only about what you do, but where you do it as well. So environment is definitely key. And the third law of rituals is that rituals must occur frequently and at similar times. So if you do something, you know, a sequence of events at a certain place, and then you don't do that again for days, for weeks, or even for months, it's it's not a ritual. A ritual is something that you're doing over and over again regularly. So you're basically not even thinking about it anymore. You're not contemplating like, so what do I do first? And then what's the next thing I do? And where should I go to do this? And you, know, you have to do it regularly, frequently, 
at, you know, even similar times of day, perhaps, like if you want to have a ritual around uh, writing in your journal, you know, in your personal diary, um, you shouldn't be trying to figure out if you want to do that in the morning when you wake up, or at night when you go to bed, or at some point, you know, during the afternoon, like, you shouldn't be every time thinking like, hmm, when do I want to write in my diary today? It should just be a ritual. It should happen at the same time every day. And that's what, you know, makes it sort of get infused into your subconscious and into your psyche that, you know, this is what's going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. And there's one more point I want to say, which I don't consider one of the three laws. It's just more of a mindset around rituals, which is you really should honor your rituals. So whatever it is that the, the little the little quirky habits and things that you do every day or, or some days or once a week or, you know, whatever the frequency is, um, I think that you should, you know, hold those in high esteem and, you know, you really should defend them against outside uh, forces that might, you know, try to, to undermine those rituals. Uh, really honor your rituals. And, you know, again, why is this so important? It's important because rituals unleash your creativity. And I'm not making that up. That's actually a blog post by Todd Henry, and a link to that is in the show notes for this show. You can go to jaredwhite.com slash podcast slash four for the show notes. So there will be a link to this blog post there. And uh, Todd Henry wrote a post called How Rituals Unleash Your Creativity. And he says, rituals are important for several reasons. First, they provide solid ground when facing the uncertainty of your daily work. Second, rituals help you forge healthy habits And finally, rituals help you achieve flow in your work. And he gives some examples, some rituals that have served him well over time. So for his rituals, he says, The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning at 6.15 a.m. is prep coffee in my French press and spend an hour reading, thinking, and writing. It's become such a ritual that it's now a habit. Most of my best ideas for my work come out of this time. I couldn't function without it. Another ritual, he says, I listen to the same music over and over when I'm writing. In fact, I wrote all of The Accidental Creative, which is one of his popular books he's written, and most of Die Empty, another book, listening to ambient music therapy's deep meditation experience. And he goes on to talk about some some other music or musicians that he listens to constantly over and over again. And so basically, when that music comes on, it switches his brain. He says, my brain knew it was time to start writing. And then finally, he says, uh, when I've signed my last few book deals, including the one I signed this week, well, congratulations, Todd. I ate a packet of ramen noodles for lunch. Why? Because I remember a time in my life when having $100 in my bank account at the end of the month meant that I felt flush with cash. I always want to remind myself to stay lean, focused, and hungry, and this ritual roots me in a place of thankfulness and gratitude. So... He has rituals that serve him well and help him get into creative flow. And I think we all need to consider the habits and the rituals that we want to cultivate. Um, Maybe we have some bad habits we want to get rid of and cultivate better habits. You know, whatever it is, find those rituals that make you happy and put you into that state of creative flow. And something I really want to emphasize here as the last thing is, you know, I don't want you to fall prey to this sort of dopey, I call it ritual porn, the kind of stuff like five things Walt Disney did every morning. So, you know, there's almost this like uh, hysterical focus people get sucked into of, you know, what 
these creative geniuses throughout history did every day. You know, what was their morning routine or what was their evening routine or, you know, what hours of the day did they work? The idea being that somehow if you replicated all of their rituals, you too would be a creative genius and invent the next Apple computer or start the next Walt Disney company. And I think that is total baloney. I think rituals are unique to every person. Your rituals are specific to you, and they may not apply to anyone else. You know, for example, my wife and I are very different personalities. My wife doesn't even like rituals very much because she's a very uh, free-form kind of person. She doesn't like having a set schedule. She doesn't like time-boxing the way I like it. You know, I, I want my day to be precise, like at 10.15 a.m. to 10.45 a.m., I want to work on this thing. And then from 10.45 a.m. to 12 noon, I'm going to work on this other thing. And, you know, I, I do a lot to try to map out everything I'm doing throughout a day. And my wife does not like that at all. She wants to just kind of whatever the thing is that comes to mind she works on, she just wants to start working on it and just kind of get into it and not think about anything else until she's done working on whatever it is she's working on. Now, that doesn't mean she doesn't have rituals herself. That doesn't mean she doesn't have certain habits or certain ways that she likes to do things in certain orders. It just means that she thinks about these things differently than I do. So her rituals don't necessarily work for me, and my rituals don't necessarily work for her, and that is okay. In fact, trying to get everyone on the same page and do the same rituals at the same time, I think is actually a source of a lot of friction in any kind of relationship, whether that's in marriage or in business or, or whatever. So, you know, the, the key here is honor your rituals, but also honor other people's rituals and realize that their rituals aren't necessarily your rituals. So just to recap, my three laws of rituals. Law number one, rituals must not be interrupted. Law number two, rituals must unfold precisely and with little alteration. And law number three, rituals must occur frequently and at similar times. And that's it for the meta tag segment today. On to the block quote tag segment. This is where we share links of interest around the web and in the current news cycle and talk about them just a little bit. Uh, The first link I would like to talk to you about is The Ethics of Persuasion. This was published on Smashing Magazine, And Smashing Magazine, in case you're not familiar, has a lot of articles and how-tos all around web design, UI, UX design. Uh, So don't worry, I'm not going to get real technical here. You don't have to be a designer at all. You don't have to be a web developer. But I thought this article that was written by Lyndon Cerejo, I hope I'm saying that right, Lyndon wrote The Ethics of Persuasion basically to to present a, a framework around how a, a developer or designer working on the web or some sort of app um, can think about, you know, the ethics of what they're doing in terms of how they create an interface, how they handle user data. And I think this is like the perfect article at the perfect time, because more than ever, people, lay people as well as technical people are thinking through you know, the ethics of what, what are our apps and, our, and websites doing with our data? How are they potentially misleading us with the actions that they present? You know, if, you, if, you have, if you've ever been to a site where, you know, you see a headline and you click on it, and then it turns out that the article isn't really about that at all, it's about some other thing, and they're trying to get you to buy something, and we think, oh, that's clickbait. You know, clickbait has 
sort of become the scourge of the web. In some ways, it's turned people off of being excited about browsing the web because you just don't know from website to website if anything you're reading is like really true. You don't know if it's accurate. You don't know if there's an angle where they're trying to psychologically manipulate you into buying something or having a certain opinion. So, you know, that that problem of, of trust and, and authority has, has become a, a real issue. And in a way, it's even getting worse now with, with AI, because you might go onto a site where you have articles that are essentially written by computers, and it's just this content farm where they're just trying to trick you into clicking on ads or, or buying something. And it's barely even like the result of actual humans creating anything. Um, so in this day and age, when there's the issue of clickbait and authority problems on the web, and then you have giant platforms like Facebook and others who are doing questionable things with user data or allowing third parties to do questionable things with user data, uh, it's more important than ever to have an ethical framework for digital experiences and how we use apps and websites and for people who create apps and websites, uh, you know, what they're doing to respect users. Um, so uh, I thought this was a great article. I highly encourage you to read it and to share it. I think, you know, this framework that he presents in this article uh, should be front and center for every designer and developer out there today. Next up, a bit of interesting, timely news, at least for those of us in the United States. Uh, the United Methodist Church has come out with a statement, an official statement, where they are urging Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United States, as part of the Trump administration, they're urging him to halt the migrant family separations that have been going on at the border. Um, So this is really quite fascinating to me, because Jeff Sessions is a Methodist. He's part of the Methodist Church, um, or at least he has been to this point. We'll see how long that continues. Um, But basically, uh, the Reverend Susan Henry Crow, the church's general secretary of the um, Methodist denomination, issued a statement that argues that the policies of Jeff Sessions and the Trump administration are antithetical to the teachings of Christ. And they just simply don't have a, a viable position to use the Bible to justify these sorts of policies. Uh, The statement reads, Jesus is our way, our truth, our life. The Christ we follow would have no part in ripping children from their mother's arms or shunning those fleeing violence. It is unimaginable that faith leaders even have to say that these policies are antithetical to the teachings of Christ. This this article on the Hill uh, came across my, my desk this morning, and I just was thinking about the rich irony of Jeff Sessions having his own church condemn his policies that he tried to justify using the Bible. And uh, I don't know about you, but my Twitter feed has been full of references to Romans 13 lately. And at first, I couldn't even figure out what people were talking about, because I I sort of missed the original speech that Jeff Sessions had made. So everyone was all of a sudden talking about Romans 13, and what does it justify in terms of following the the law and order of the land you live in, and the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Roman Empire and his day, and and the the United States government we have today. And so (laughs) anyway, it's this this huge can of worms issue, as as so many of these issues tend to be. but I just think that, you know, if, if Jeff Sessions as attorney general is claiming to, you know, have uh, 
the Bible at his back for immigration policies. And then his own church condemns that and says those sorts of policies are completely antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, and the church does not support that position whatsoever. Um, it, it certainly puts him in a bit of an interesting position. Unless you cry, oh, well, that's just because the leadership of the United Methodist Church denomination is very liberal, and he's a conservative. So, of course, those liberals in power aren't going to like his conservative policies. I just want to point out another article, and again, all of these links are in the show notes at jaredwhite.com slash podcast slash four. Um, there's another article about a recent annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the SBC denomination as part of their 2018 resolutions, um, some of which are on the Me Too movement and the role of women in the church and abuse that has gone on in the church. So that's all interesting. Um, But what's related to this conversation is their resolution on immigration. And uh, I won't read the whole resolution because it's quite long. But um, just to paraphrase uh, from a couple bits here, the, the resolution basically reads, Uh, Whereas every man, woman, and child from every language, race, and nation is a special creation of God, and whereas scripture is clear on the believer's hospitality towards immigrants, whereas Southern Baptists affirm the value of the family, whereas untold numbers of men, women, and children seeking to enter the United States legally often languish at the borders due to the complexity of our immigration system, um, etc., etc., be it resolved that uh, the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention affirm the value and dignity of immigrants, regardless of their race, religion, ethnicity, culture, national origin, or legal status. And uh, they go on to say that they declare that any form of nativism, mistreatment, or exploitation is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Southern Baptist Convention denomination affirms that all immigrants are either brothers and sisters in Christ or people whom God loves and has given the church an opportunity to reach the gospel where they otherwise may have never heard. So, you know, they have to put their little evangelistic bit on there at the end and who can blame them because, you know, that's what they're supposed to do as a church according to their theology. However, the point being here is that the conservative denomination that everyone thinks of when they think of conservative denominations in America, the Southern Baptists are coming out with a resolution precisely at odds with the policies of the Trump administration and Jeff Sessions orders for how to handle the uh, illegal immigrants at the border. And I just, this just is blowing my mind right now. So could it be, could it be that the tide is finally turning where even evangelicals, you know, the the Trump base, the people that got him into power are turning against him because of his policies being completely antithetical to any sane reading of Jesus' ministry and what the Bible says about Jesus. Could it be? Uh, we, we will have to see how this unfolds. But basically, the SBC, the Methodist Church, the Catholic Church, And I suspect more denominations to follow are coming out condemning Trump's policies around immigration. And this is absolutely fascinating to me. I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Next up, a little bit of a cheerier note. I have a link here to an article from The Minimalists. This is uh, the the dynamic duo, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. I've written about them before. I've reviewed their uh, documentary about the minimalism movement and their role in it. Um, I enjoy their podcasts and their blog quite a bit. 
And this blog post is very short, but I thought it was one of the most succinct ways to describe thinking around minimalism. And uh, I'll just read the post because it's so short and I think it's quite excellent. So here we go. Everything we own can be placed in three piles. Essentials. Few possessions should fall into this pile. There are the necessities we can't live without, food, shelter, clothes. While the specifics change for each person, most of our needs are universal. Non-essentials. In an ideal world, most of the things we own would fit in this pile. They are the objects we want in our lives because they add value. Strictly speaking, I don't need a couch, a bookshelf, or a dining table in my living room, but these items enhance, amplify, or augment my experience of life. Junk. Sadly, most of our things belong in this pile. These are the artifacts we like, or more accurately think we like, but they don't serve a purpose or bring us joy. The average American home contains more than 300,000 items, and most of it is junk. While this junk often masquerades as indispensable, it actually gets in the way of a more meaningful life. Of course, the personal effects in these piles are different for everyone. The widgets that add value to my life might be junk to you, and vice versa. The key, then, is to continue to question the things we bring into our lives, and to question the things we hold on to, because the stuff that adds value today might be tomorrow's junk. So I love this article because for me, my journey over the last few years has been uh, a realization that far fewer things of mine are actually in that essentials category. Far fewer things of mine are even in that non-essentials category. And way more things than I once realized are just in the junk category. More and more, I've realized that I can get rid of a ton of things. A lot of things I have are not even essentials to staying alive and, you know, having a roof over my head or food or clothing. Uh, And so, you know, I think the more that we realize that we don't have to hold on to everything, the more we realize that downsizing is not a bad word. It's actually a great thing to go through. For me personally, my my journey into minimalism has been part of an overall journey of greater self-awareness and greater mindfulness that has made me increasingly happy and fulfilled. Um, so I hope you appreciated the, the minimalists, uh, Joshua and Ryan's uh, take on this, the, the categories they present of essentials, non-essentials, and junk. And I encourage you to think through, you know, what are the things you own that could fit into those categories? And maybe the more you think about it, the more you'll realize that the essentials you thought were essentials are actually non-essentials. And the non-essentials you thought were non-essentials are actually junk, and you probably don't need them. And for our image tag segment today, I want to present to you a little bit of information on Juneteenth. Now, what's Juneteenth? I hadn't actually heard of this until this year, uh, and it may be that I'm just quite out of the loop and everyone else is aware of this, but uh, on June 19th, there's a holiday commemorating the not the drafting of or the publication of the Emancipation Proclamation, but the enforcement of it in Texas. And that kind of was a moment that turned the tide to, uh, you know, to abolish slavery in America and to free the slaves across the country. Um, So everyone is going to be celebrating Juneteenth this year, as they have past years, to to celebrate the freeing of the black slaves in America and um, the freedom of that community. And, you know, Independence Day is coming up on July 4th. But for many people in this country, the liberation of their people did not occur in 1776, but came much, much later. And too much later goes without saying. 
so I have a link here to history.com. They have a nice article about what is Juneteenth, along with a video, a little bit about how the Emancipation Proclamation came to be and the sort of legal hurdles that uh, President Lincoln had to overcome and work his way through to even issue such a proclamation. I also have a link to the Juneteenth article on Wikipedia. And uh, just generally, I feel like uh, I'm very slowly but <laughs> surely coming to a greater awareness of the uh, history of the African-American community in America. And a big part of their history, of course, is the, the uh, transition from slavery to freedom um, you know, at least technically, it, it certainly can be argued that we're still in the throes of that transition, that racism is still alive and well in America, um, that, you know, the, the stigma of slavery and the societal problems of slavery have not all been done away with, unfortunately. But I think it's important for, for all of us, no matter what our ethnicity or what our background, to uh, recognize the importance of celebrating freedom and uh, denouncing slavery for the evil it is. So I encourage everyone to, to think about Juneteenth this year and to celebrate it in your way. And uh, please check out these two links that I have about Juneteenth to find out more. And that's it, folks. That's today's show, episode four. Uh, you can go to jaredwhite.com slash podcast slash four for all of the links that I've talked about today. And please subscribe in your podcast player of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castro, Pocket Casts. Um, just go to the website, click the link, and you will be subscribed. And please review us, if you will, in your uh, podcast directory of choice, and that will help other people find this show. Uh, you can also subscribe via email, so every time there's a new episode or there's a new blog post, you'll get emails for uh, the links to all of those. So thanks for supporting and listening to The Jared White Show, and I will see you next week. Bye! Jerry Rachel.